money to you. I couldn't help myself. I had to, <laughs> I had to do it. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, happy St. Patty's Day. I can assure you this is the last one on St. Patty's Day. <laughs> oh. But uh, God uses the, the foolish things of the world. You know, when, when Sean called me back in uh, January and asked me if I was available for to preach, I said, of course, I, of course. I, I hung up, I was at the dining room table and I was good. Jesus got some sense. <laughs> he has, he has. Uh, an Irishman who was, excuse me, excuse me, use this? No, use this one. St. Patrick's Day Gremlins. <laughs> It was easy, it wouldn't be fun, right? <laughs> so I was sitting at the dining room table and I said, well, Jesus, uh, he's got some sense of humor. You know, here he is, he's, he's using me, an Irishman who was inebriated most of the time. I don't want to say drunk because I'm in church. <laughs> but it was inebriated most of the time and uh, never went to church and didn't even know if I believed in Jesus or not. And here he has me in the, the pulpit on St. Patty's Day in, in, in church. And it's just a, amazing what, he, uh, what Jesus will do in your life. And as I sat there, I was thinking, you know, I don't think I've ever seen a picture. We were talking about that when we were praying this morning. I don't think I've ever seen a picture of Jesus smiling. He's always got that solemn look on his face. But I, I think Jesus liked to have a good time and laugh and, and smile as much as we do. I mean, we're, we're made in his image and his likeness, right? And he was the greatest storyteller that that ever lived, and what storyteller would forsake using humor, right? It lets, it lets people put their guard down and they, they feel more comfortable. And as I sat there and, and thought about it, you know, Jesus, he, he always was uh, invited to weddings. People liked to invite him and have him around. He was always going to people's houses and, and, and staying over. And don't you think, uh, I thought about it, don't you think Jesus laughed or at least had a, a smile on his face when He's seen the look on Adam's face when he woke up and he realized he was married. <laughs> I, I, I think he probably laughed. Well, let me ask you have, you, have you ever lost anything? Well, in 1999, Massachusetts resident Kim Flanders put a handbag on the roof of a car, loaded up the kids, and drove away. Had this been a romantic comedy or a soap opera, the bag would have fallen through the roof of a passing convertible and she would have been married to some guy named Ryan within a month. <laughs> but as it was, she just lost her bag. When she realized her error, she went back to the parking lot to look for the bag, but 
No luck. 18 years later, Donde Mitchell decided to go fishing in Silver Lake and pulled up, of course, Flanders Bag. Mitchell recognized the name on the ID as belonging to a woman who he graduated high school with in Orange, Massachusetts, home to about 7,800 people. So Mitchell got in touch with Flanders on Facebook and mailed her bag to a new home in Florida. The bag was filled with rocks, presumably to, to weigh it down after someone disposed of it and plundered it. But, the, uh, but it also contained two well-preserved rings from Flanders' first marriage. Oh, and the date of that marriage? June 2nd, the same date Mitchell fished up her pocketbook. Well, it's one thing to lose your pocketbook, but it's another thing to lose a child. Have you ever been at an amusement park or on a boardwalk or in a store and you had your child with you and for a minute you didn't know where they were? You know that sense of panic that comes over you? But there's nothing worse than that. And when I was a kid, my, my mother and father were losing me all the time, but no matter how hard they ran away and tried to hide, I always, <laughs> I always managed to find them. <laughs> well, here in Luke 15 is a parable that Jesus told about a father losing a son. But before we dig in, I want to briefly describe what's, what's happening here to, to make things clear when we finally dig into this passage. A feeling footloose and frisky, a feather-brained fellow forced his fond father to fork over the family finances. He flew far to farm and fields and frittered his fortune, feasting fabulously with faithless friends. Finally facing famine and fleeced by his fellows in folly, he found himself a feed flinger in a filthy farmyard. Fairly famished, he fain would have filled his frame with the forage foods of the fodder fragments left by those filthy farmyard creatures. Fooey, he said, my father's flunkies fare far fancier, the fragile fugitive found feverishly, frankly facing facts. Frustrated, frustrated by failure and filled with foreboding, he forthwith fled to his family. Falling at his father's feet, he floundered forlornly. Father, I flunked. <laughs> and I fruitlessly forfeited family favor. But the faithful father, forestalling further flinching, frantically flagged the flunkies. Fetch forth the finest fatling and fix a feast. But the fugitive's fault-finding frater frowned on the fickle forgiveness of the former folder all. His fury flashed, but fussing was futile, for the far-sighted father figured such filial fidelity is fine. But what forbids further festivity? The fugitive is found on further flags with fair fast flaring. Let fun and frolic freely flow. Former failures forgotten, follies forsaken, and forgiveness forms the foundation for future fortitude. Now, I hope that kind of clears things up for you. <laughs> As we dig into this text this morning. Well, this is, this is probably the most familiar of all of Jesus' parables. Max Licato goes far, as so far to say, as it's the greatest short story ever written. And he might be right, because everyone knows and appreciates the story of the prodigal son, don't they? But why did Jesus tell this story? Well, the answer to that is found in Luke 15, verses 1 and 2. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. And it seemed like the more that Jesus taught, the more the religious people got angry with them. As one group grew closer, the other group grew further away. While the sinners cherished what he taught, the religious people detested it. 
So this parable was told by Jesus to disprove the claims of the Pharisees. They hated the sinners of the day, especially tax collectors. And there were a few reasons for the, the low view of tax collectors in the New Testament era. First, no one likes to pay money to the government, right? Especially when that government is an oppressive regime like the Roman Empire. Second, tax collectors in the Bible were, were Jews who were working for the hated Roman government. These individuals, these individuals were seen as turncoats and traitors to their own countrymen. Rather than fighting the Roman oppressors, these tax collectors were, were helping them, and they were making themselves rich at the expense of their fellow Jews. Third, it was common knowledge that the tax collectors cheated the people that they collected from. By hook or by crook, they would collect more than was required, and they would keep that extra for themselves. See, the Pharisees' attitude was sinners are bad, especially tax collectors. Don't have anything to do with sinners. Don't talk to sinners. Stay away from sinners. So along comes Jesus, and who does he hang around with? Sinners. He was called a friend of sinners. Verse 2 says that this man receives sinners and he eats with them. The word receives here means gladly with open arms. This doesn't mean that Jesus condoned their sins, but he loved them despite their sins. And he hung around with them so he could change them. How are we supposed to change people if we don't have some kind of a, a relationship with them, if we don't have some kind of contact with them. And that's the common theme all through Luke 15. Jesus is always looking for lost sinners. And that's the title of our, our, our message today. Jesus is always looking for lost sinners. But that was the furthest thing from the mind of his listeners, and it even made some of them angry. So let's read Luke 15, beginning in verse 11, all the way to the end of the chapter. Luke 15, beginning in verse 11, all the way to the end. And I believe the uh, Luke 15 in the, the Blue Pew Bible is on page 1112. And as we turn in the Word of God, let's turn to the God of that Word in prayer. Father, we thank you for the honor and the privilege to sit at your feet this morning to hear what you have to say to us. Lord, I pray that you would use me as your vessel to share your message this morning. Bring those thoughts to mind and put those words in my mouth that you would have me share. I pray that when we leave here, Father, we'll be more in love with you than when we walked in here. Help us to recognize that in spite of our rebellion, you still love us. And when we find ourselves in the far country because of our sins, we know that we could always come home again to your waiting arms. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's read Luke 15. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them asked his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the youngest son gathered all he had and took a journey into the far country. And there he squandered all his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I'll arise, and I'll go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. 
Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And then the son said to his father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let's eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older brother was in the field, and he came, and as he came, he drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother's come, and your father's killed the fattened calf because he received them back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you, you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Well, this story begins with a shocking request. Shocking because the youngest son asked for his inheritance before his father died, something that was pretty much unheard of in Jewish culture. Verse 11 and 12 says, And the youngest said to them, and the younger, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Well, according to Jewish law, the oldest son was given twice as, mu as, twice as much as the other sons. And the father could distribute his wealth during his lifetime if he wanted to. I mean, it was perfectly legal for this young son to ask for, uh, for, his share as the, for his share of his father's estate. But it really wasn't a loving and caring thing to do. In fact, it was, it was really an insult, because it was almost like saying to his father, I wish you were dead. See, we're always heading for trouble when we, we value things more than people. Pleasure more than responsibility, and, and distant places more than the blessings we have right here at home. Jesus once told two disputing brothers, take care and be on guard of all covetousness, because life doesn't consist of an abundance of possessions. Why? Well, because a greedy person can never be satisfied no matter how much he has. Someone who's never content is never happy. And the prodigal learned the hard way that you can't enjoy the things money can buy if you ignore the things that money can't buy. I think Paul McCartney was probably writing about this parable when he wrote, Money Can't Buy Me Love. Now, we aren't told why the younger son asked for his father's inheritance, but maybe he wanted to make a name for himself. Maybe him and his younger brother didn't get along. Or maybe he was just bored with his life on a ranch. We don't know. But for whatever reason, he wanted more than what he already had. He wanted what was coming to him. And he thought it would be to his benefit to take his inheritance early and leave town. You see, whenever we think we need more than God or, or more than what God's provided for us, well, when we start thinking like that, we're in trouble. You see, our sin nature is always looking for pleasure from anything other than, what, anything other than God and what he's provided. And that's our first point this morning. Our, our sin nature 
is looking for pleasure from anything other than God or what he provides. In fact, this was the message that Satan spoke to Eve in the Garden of Eden. He told Eve, and this is a paraphrase, Eve, if you remain loyal to God, your life is going to be so much less than it could be. What God has given you, ain't enough. Your life can be so much more satisfying and, and exciting if you weren't so devoted to God and all those rules that he has. See, we're always headed in the wrong direction when we think that things will be better for us or, or that we, we'd have more freedom away from God. Well, for whatever reason, the father in this story gave his son what he wanted. He granted his request. Maybe he knew his kid well enough to realize that the only way he was going to learn in life was the hard way. And God is like that father, isn't he? He gives us the freedom to accept him or reject him, to follow him or to go our own way. How are we using that freedom these days? Are we acknowledging God in all our ways? Or are there parts of our life where we foolishly go our own way? Well, the, those words in verse 11 and 12 tell us that the son not only got his, his portion of the estate, which probably included some land and, and livestock, he most likely sold it and turned it into cold, hard cash. And I think because he was in such a hurry, he undoubtedly got much less than it was worth. This would have been inexcusable back in the day because the father's estate wasn't measured in stock portfolios, bonds, money markets, or cash. Wealth was measured in livestock and land. And in the Jewish culture, you didn't sell land that belonged to your family. Land was part of the family's legacy. It was part of the family's identity. To liquidate it, to, to dissolve it. It was a huge insult to the entire clan. But this is exactly what this son did. And another surprising aspect of this young man's request is that they, he very quickly wasted his cash in loose living, as we read in verse 13. Not many days later, the youngest son gathered all he had and took a journey into the far country. And then he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and it began to be in need. See, this was a very selfish thing to do, because in that, age, in that day and age, cattle, sheep, money, land, were all part of the family's social security system. See, as people grew older... That's how they made it through to the end of their lives, by living off the estate. So when this rebellious son sold part of that estate, he was actually cutting off his father's and his family's finances. He took something that his father would need later in life, and according to the New Living t Translation, it says, wasted it in riotous living. The word riotous here means loud or wild. It means wild parties, loud music, bright city lights. The Greek word translated wasted means to, to blow away. It's the same word that was used to describe the winnowing process that the farmers of that day used on grain. When grain was harvested from the fields, it was placed on a wooden or a stone threshing floor. And animals were led round and round over the, over the grain, and the pressure from the hooves trampled the grain and forced the kernels to pop out. And on a windy day, the farmer would use a, a wooden paddle, much like a shovel today. And he tossed the grain into the air, and when this was done, the wind would blow the lighter husks away, and the heavier grain would fall back on the floor. And by repeating this process, the husks are all soon blown away, and nothing but the pure grain is left on the threshing floor. This was called winnowing, because the wind was used to blow away the husks. 
And that's the word he, that's used here to describe what this young man did with his family's inheritance. Today we would say he literally blew it all on wild living. Now some of you might think, and this reminds me of, of, of Grandma who always had my back. I was always getting in trouble. And grandma, grandma used to tell my mother, well, boys will be boys. And you know, boys do tend to sow their wild oats. But when we sow wild oats, all we reap is wild, worthless oats. Whenever we senselessly disobey God, we usually come back worse than when we left. We always pay the price for sowing wild oats, as this prodigal soon discovered. Sin is an expensive business. It's never an investment. It always costs us something. And as Rabbi Zacharias says, and this is our next point, sin will keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you want to pay. Sin will keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you want to pay. Sin's expensive, very expensive. And the price isn't always paid in cash, though. It's paid in mental, emotional, and spiritual pain. See, God didn't create a random list of do's and don'ts and things that we should and shouldn't do so we could see if we could follow them. No. God laid out a set of instructions in the Bible for us to follow that are absolutely necessary for living. Everything that the Bible calls a sin is something that God is trying to protect us from. Sin is the most expensive thing out there. For those of us who have professed Christ as our, our Lord and Savior, sin costs God his only son. And for those people who, who, who haven't professed Christ, that are aren't followers of Christ yet, sin is going to cost those people their souls. Sin causes us to, to lose everything we hold dear to us. Family, friends, jobs, homes, all of these things can be lost to sin. It separates us from God's blessings and, and separates us from those we love. Sin causes us to have all sorts of problems. It causes us worry. Guilt from the things we've done can rob us of our happiness and our joy. We can easily become a slave to sin, as this man did. We lose control of our lives and those things that we value. We lose our joy, the happiness in our heart, the joy in our souls, and the hope in our lives is gone. Sin also affects our health, whether it's from substance abuse or emotional sickness. Guilt and shame can, can slowly eat away at us. It can make us paralyzed with fear and doubt and confusion. See, there was a time in my life when I couldn't continue to live the way that I was living, but I couldn't stop living that way either. I, had, I doubted that, that things could ever change. I was confused. I, I didn't know what to do. I had fear. I was afraid of continuing to live that way, and I was afraid of change. It's a terrible place to be. In my life, the times when I was the most miserable and, and down and out with the times when I was living the way I knew I shouldn't. But when you know better, it makes things that much worse. My sin almost cost me my family. See, when your eyes are open to, to your sin and you repent and you begin to see things from God's point of view, you realize how much sin is really costing you. Sin not only hurts you, but it hurts everyone around you. And because of my sin... We missed out on a lot of blessings that God had for us as a family. But thank God that he's in the restoration business. God is still in the restoration business. Amen. And when you confess 
and repent and turn to God and you're sorry for the things you sinned, that restoration process begins. See, you and I can't afford the high price of our sins or our transgressions. They're infinitely expensive because they're sins against God. But fortunately for us, God paid the infinite price by sending his son to die for us. Amen? Amen. And we can show him gratitude by asking for his forgiveness when we miss the mark and we fail him. See, asking for forgiveness and and, and praying for protection from the, the temptation to sin cuts down on the side effects. But ultimately, we're indebted to God because he footed the bill for our indiscretions. By his wounds we are healed. And we can't ever forget the price that was paid for our, our sin. Verse 15 and 16 say, So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. Most of all of the, most if not all of us have been there, haven't we? We felt that shame, the humiliation that, of sin as we, as we look for something other than, than God to satisfy us. We learned the hard way that the longer we sin, the longer we stay in that far country, the longer we rebel against God, the emptier and the hungrier we feel. But many times God will use these very situations and difficulties to get our attention so we'll have to come to him. What appears to be a a painful, a desperate situation is often God's invitation to draw near to him. So as our next point tells tells us, sin Even our greatest sin failures can lead us to Jesus. Sin, even our greatest sin failures can lead us to Jesus. When we humble ourselves and we ask God to forgive us, we can enter into a a more intimate relationship with him. However, if we continue to live in rebellion and aren't willing to confess and repent, he won't make himself known to us. Sin always blocks our ability to know the Lord. Have you allowed adversity or failure to pull you away from God rather than toward him? To put distance between you and Jesus? Satan is going to try to use these very situations that God can use to, to draw us closer and closer to him. Don't let the enemy win that battle. Don't let Satan win. This should remind us that when the Lord is our shepherd, we do not want, but when we walk away from him, we always want. His way is always best and always the most satisfying. Well, up until now, I think that the Pharisees probably liked this story Jesus was telling. Right on, Jesus. Exactly. Those people you hang around with are sinners. They deserve to be punished. Preach that sermon, Rabbi. Turn or burn. Forsake or bake. Amen, amen. We love this kind of stuff, don't we, fellas? But I think as he continued to preach, the amen corner began to quiet down a little bit. Because in the next part of the story, Jesus included a, 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 a surprising twist. See, in spite of uh, his great sin, the boy determined to go home. And at this point, I want you to be sure to note something, that the same way that the boy took steps away from his dad, there were steps back to him also. And this should help us to see that when we take steps away from God, there are always steps back to us as well. The same steps, in fact, that this prodigal took. (coughs) Excuse me. When we feel sorry about our sin and we, we find ourselves in the far country needing to walk in the direction that this son walked, there are three steps that we need to take. Excuse me. The first step back to Jesus is repentance. Look at verses 17 to 19. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. Hunger. 
I'll arise and I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. See, to repent means to change your mind, to go in a different direction. And that's exactly what this son did. He finally began to recognize things as they really were. He saw how crazy his actions were, how insane. And you know, the fact is that all sin is really a form of ins insanity. We keep doing the same things over and over again, expecting different results. Anyone would be crazy to give up a relationship with God for the pleasures of this world. There was a missionary back in the 1950s, Jim Elliott, and while he was still in college, he said, we'd be foolish to give up what we cannot lose to gain what we cannot keep. But many times in life, we're, we become foolish enough to forget that, don't we? We talk ourselves into believing that sin is fun. And for a while it is, right? Sin is fun for a while. If it wasn't fun, we wouldn't be doing it, right? We think that disobeying God is going to lead us to experience some joy, or God is holding out on us with something. And that's what happened to this prodigal. The Proverbs 14 tells us that there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. See, he apparently thought that things would be better far away from his father's leadership and guidance, that the joys of the far country would be greater than the pleasures of being with his father. He wanted to be free, free from his father's authority, free from his father's control. But then he allowed his, the drinking and his woman to control him. Sin always takes control of us. And then when his money began to run out, he probably told himself that the hard times are only temporary. My ship is going to come in someday. He probably told himself that I'm not really doing too bad. We rationalize our sins. There was a time in my life, and maybe some of you remember this from when I shared my testimony here. I was living on the streets of Tampa, Florida. I spent a lot of time in a, in a park in downtown Tampa, right across from Tampa University. And at night, I'd sleep on a piece of cardboard between a, a, some hedges and bushes and a concrete wall of a bridge. And I'd wake up in the morning, and I'd be sick as a dog. Oh, so sick, hungover, feeling terrible. And I'd drag myself a little further downtown, and I'd do whatever I had to do to get some money so I could buy my medicine. And I'd head back to the park, and I would drink or smoke whatever I got, and I'd start to feel a little better. The headache would go away. The, the sick feeling would go away, and i tell myself, you know, gee, I ain't doing so bad. People work all their lives to be tired of Florida. <laughs> I did it in 30 years. I got a beautiful view with Tampa Bay, St. Pete, right over there. No bills to pay, can't beat the rent. I'm not doing so bad. We rationalize our sins. And even when he had to take a job with the pig farm, at first he he probably thought that he was only going to be doing this for a little while, just until my luck changes, and then I'll get my life back together again. Maybe he told himself, don't worry, I'm going to make it big in pigs, the sausage king of the far country. <laughs> it was only when he hit rock bottom that he realized that no one, not even his former faithless, forsaking friends, would give him anything. It was only, it was only then that he came to his senses and frankly faced the fact that he had been foolishly sinful. You know, sometimes like the prodigal, we have to learn things the hard way, that, God, that God's way is best, don't we? King David did. I say this because he wrote a psalm of gratitude for the lessons that he learned in the school of hard knocks. In Psalm 119, he said to God, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, after I have encountered these tough times, 
I obey your word. It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. See, looking back, I know now that if God hadn't allowed all those hard times in my life, I wouldn't be here today. See, the first, back, the first step back to God for all prodigals is repentance. When you realize that you're going in the wrong direction, the wrong way in life, you need to, to turn back to God. See, we were, we were walking this way, see? Well, away from God. That's how you walk away from God when you're from Jersey City. <laughs> we were walking away from God. We have to turn and put our past behind us and press on to the goal. Keep moving forward. Don't look back at our past. The, sep- the second step back to Jesus is confession. The, the son had, he had sinned, and now coming to his senses, in verse 18 and 19 it says, he acknowledged his sin. He said, I'll arise and I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Notice that he didn't make excuses for his behavior. He didn't blame others as Adam had blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. No. He confessed his sin as his sin. Because he had come to see himself as, as his sin for what it was, sin. It's not a disease, it's not an ism, it's not alcoholism, it's a sin. And he confessed that, and he, and he confessed that it was sin against heaven as well against his father. And that gave the sin even greater seriousness. Let me stop and ask, do you ever stumble in this particular step back to God? Do you ever start out confessing your sin and end up excusing it? Oh, I know I shouldn't have lashed out at my wife or husband like that, but I had such a hard day. Oh, I know I shouldn't have gossiped, but I just needed somebody to talk to. Oh, my favorite. I know I shouldn't have gone to the bar, but everybody else was going. I didn't want to be left out. You know what I mean? Do you ever do that? Do you ever spend more time excusing sin than confessing it? I don't think God takes our excuses very seriously. I really don't. See, the word confess means to call it the same thing. In other words, when we sin, we don't need to make excuses for it or blame somebody else or try to wiggle out of it. No. We need to say, God, this was sin. You call it sin. I confess it as sin, and that's all there is to it. Please forgive me. To confess means to own up to the fact that the behavior wasn't anyone else's fault but mine. Confession means that I made a conscious choice. I made a choice to do it. It doesn't need to be excused. It doesn't need to be explained. It needs to be forgiven. <clears throat> After his sin with Bathsheba, King David admitted to God in Psalm 51, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. We should know that this, saw, this son saw his actions as sinful because he planned to go home and asked to be a higher servant. A hired servant wasn't only less than a son, but a servant was actually considered less than a slave. A slave at least had some job security. A hired servant, he could be fired from his job. So the son didn't ask for the best in his father's house, but for the least. Verse 20 and 21 says, And he arose, and he came to the father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father... I've sinned against heaven in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So he didn't ask to be made one of the highest servants. He just confessed and threw himself on his father's mercy. That's true confession. 
No deals, no negotiations, no strings attached. We come to the third step that all returning, prodigal, all returning prodigals must make. Turn from our sins and place our trust in Christ alone. We have to turn from our sins and trust, place our trust in Christ alone. Verse 20 says that having seen himself as he was and having confessed his sin as sin, the prodigal got up and went to his father. He repented. He turned from his sinful choices and he headed home. You see, thinking alone didn't save him, but although his thinking was right. Confession alone didn't save him, though he had a lot to confess. He needed to turn around and return to his father. And that's what he did. To return to God, we too have to take that final step. We have to turn and make a complete about face with our past. We have to put our past behind us. There's an old saying in baseball that you can't steal second base with your foot still on first. And neither can you begin a new relationship with God with your feet still planted in the past. You have to leave your sins behind. Proverbs 20, 28 tells us, he who conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. You see, to forsake means to abandon or reject. You see, forsaking sin always follows genuine confession of sin. Well, the son headed home, and as he turned up the last road, something unbelievably wonderful happened. And I think maybe this is why this story is, is so memorable and loved. His father came running down the road to meet him. Verse 20 says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, and he was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and, and kissed him. And this would indicate that the father regularly looked for his son. Every day, the father probably went for long walks on the estate, looking at every road leading up to the house, waiting for the son to come home. See, in this story, this story the father uh, symbolizes God. In all of Scripture, in all of Scripture, this is the only time we see God hurrying at anything, hurrying to welcome a repentant sinner home. This part of the story reminded me of, of James 4 and 8, where it says, draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. He'll run to be near you. Now, this father's surprising behavior at this point would have shocked the Pharisees. I imagine they were standing there with their mouths hanging open because a kiss in Palestinian culture was a sign of full acceptance, full friendship. And the father didn't just stop with a kiss or a hug. Verse 22 to 24 says, But the father said to the servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let's eat and celebrate. Let's have a barbecue. But this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now if this would have been my son, I would have said, son, let's go home. Oh, your mother's going to be so glad to see you. And I'm glad you're home safe and sound too, son. But bada bing, you... <laughs> You're punished for the rest of your life. Well, not this father. No, not this father. He simply, joyfully welcomed his son home. Didn't even punish him. Someone asked Abraham Lincoln that toward the end of the Civil War, how are you going to treat these rebellious Southerners when the war's over? And Lincoln said, I'm going to treat them as though they never left. That's what the father did, and that's what God does for us. And the Pharisees would have sympathized with the older brother. They would have felt that he shouldn't have been welcomed home, that he deserved punishment instead. But that's the one thing, that's, that's one of the things that this story illustrates. 
It says Philip Yancey, the, the Christian author, says, God is like a lovesick father who cares more about us than our sin, and he longs to welcome us home and restore us to sonship. When we take these three steps, when we recognize our sin, confess it, turn from it, and return to our Heavenly Father, he restores the joy of our salvation. He redeems us so that we can receive full rights of sons as sons. You see, the Father not only takes them back, but he gives them full privileges. Bring the best robe. Put a ring on his hand. Sandals on his feet. What's a robe? A robe is honor. It's the most important garment in the family. You see, it was owned and it was worn by the Father at all the important family events. It gave this kid full, full family honor that they could possibly give him. The signet ring, that was used to stamp official documents and it gave the kid freedom and authority to act on behalf of the family with all the family resources. And then put shoes on his feet. Servants are barefoot. Hired men, they're barefoot. But masters, rulers, sons, they wear shoes. Give them full sonship. Give them full power of that sonship, full authority, full honor. That's a picture of salvation. When a sin is bankrupt with absolutely nothing and throws himself on his father's mercy, he says, I wasted everything. I've sinned against you, God, and I, I can't offer you anything. But I'm willing to work. I'm willing to work my way back. I'll pay for the things I did. And the father embraces him and says, you don't have to work. I give you full sonship with all rights, all privileges, all authority. That's salvation. And why does the father do that? Because it gives him joy. It gives the father joy. Verse 23 says, what the Pharisees would have seen as shameful celebration, bring the fatted calf, kill it. Let's eat and be merry. See, the father sees that as joyful. The heavenly father's joy is found when, when a sinner comes home and repents and, for, and is forgiven. That's the joy of God. So the wonderful, memorable news of this parable illustrates that Jesus is always looking for lost sinners. And you and I can always come home again. We were created for fellowship with, with God. Sin, our far country, broke that fellowship and separated us from my Heavenly Father. But in spite of our rebellion, God still loves us. And through the death, and through the death of His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, He made it possible for our forgiveness and our return. We can go home again. We can return to the open waiting arms of our Heavenly Father. Well, after hearing this familiar story, perhaps, perhaps you've seen that you're like the prodigal. You've rebelled against God and you see your need to return. You're lost and you realize that life without God is joyless. Maybe this parable has shown you that you need to be less like the Pharisees. You need to reach out with compassion to the loss of the world. Maybe you have an addiction to alcohol, drugs, pornography, whatever. And something that used to be fun has now caused you to, to become a slave to it. You can't live like that anymore, but you don't see how you could possibly live without it. It's costing you more than you want to pay, and it's keeping you longer than you want to stay. But there is hope. There is hope. You may be at the end of your rope, but with Christ... You're never at the end of your hope. It's costing you more than you, than, than you want to pay, keeping you longer than you want to stay. If you're sick and tired of being sick and tired and you want to come home, turn to Jesus and repent. 
That means you are walking in this direction away from Jesus. Turn. Turn this way and start walking toward him. He's been looking for you. And he's waiting with open arms. Tell him how sorry you are. Confess your sins to him. He isn't surprised by anything that you've done. He knows. He knows. And he'll use our greatest failures, our worst sins, to lead us back home. If this is you this morning, you want to come home, I invite you to pray this prayer knowing that the God of all the universe is listening right now. There's no magic words in this prayer. You say this prayer, you're not joining a church or some religion or Calvary, free church, uh, Calvary Evangelical Free Church. It's just simply a way of expressing the desires of your heart. With all heads bowed and eyes closed, if you want to pray this prayer, repeat after me. Father, thank you for loving me. I know that I failed you in so many ways. And I'm truly sorry for the sins of my life. Life in the far country is hard and it's joyless. And I want to come home. I believe that you love me so much that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for me, to take away the penalty that I deserve for my sins. I'm trusting in what Jesus did for me. Not my good works, but in what Jesus did for me to save me from my sins. Forgive me and help me to spend the rest of my life serving you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here this morning and you prayed that prayer, I challenge you to tell somebody before you leave here this morning. Tell somebody I made that commitment to Christ. There's people with name tags around. Maybe some of the elders can be up here. I'll be at the back of the church. Tell somebody before you leave here this morning. Amen? Amen. Happy St. Patty's Day. <laughs>